just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. From APP.com, it's time to talk college hoops in the Garden State. Welcome to Jersey Jump Shot. That's right. It's once again time for Jersey Jump Shot. We're talking college hoops in the Garden State. Thanks for hanging out with us. Ryan Ross here with Jerry Carino, Steve Edelson, and Chris Eisman back for another week of college basketball in New Jersey. Kind of an up and down week for the teams in the Garden State this past week. Seton Hall, they lose their two on the road. Rutgers goes one and one on the road. Monmouth, they lose two in a row as well to St. Peter's and Marist. But look out for Princeton. They've won nine in a row. They won their two games this past week. But back to Monmouth, less about what happened on the court for the Hawks and more about what their future holds, not just for the basketball program, but for Monmouth athletics as a whole because Steve Edelson, the Hawks, they'll have a new conference home coming next year. Yeah, the Hawks are going to move to the Colonial Athletic Association, for, uh, moving from the MAC. Um, and really, this is a move that has been in the works for a while in terms of Mammoth upgrading its teams, upgrading its facilities. You know, they've always known they're going to need a better regional foot fit for their football team. The MAC does not play football. Mammoth has a good football team. They've been playing in the Big South, playing a lot of teams you know, from really Virginia and and below. So it's been tough for them. The Colonial plays football. They have one of the best FCS football uh, leagues in the country. So it's a great move for them. And it really makes sense in terms of basketball as well. You know, we did a a little comparison over a 10-year period where uh, we looked at uh, league's rankings based on RPI. And the CAA is generally four to five leagues ahead of the Mac annually. So it's a better basketball league. Um, it's, it's an, it's a really a, uh, it's a good move for Monmouth. It, it makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, listen, you're going to lose some New Jersey rivalries, but you, it's going to be a lot of, uh, area teams and some good, some good schools. And, you know, Monmouth goes from having the best facility in the league to now, in a league where everyone has a facility like Monmouth and most have better ones. So uh, that's also a big upgrade for Monmouth. So it's a move that makes a lot of sense. And uh, I, I think Monmouth, it was a no brainer for them. Good scoop. Good job by you get, breaking that news. Uh, but I got to tell you, I'm a little bit sad and I understand. I get it for football. It's a grand slam for Monmouth. Great football league. Uh, and you know, it's a good, much better geographical fit. You'll have some really intriguing games, you know, here and away. But uh, and for basketball, yes, you are correct. The CAA is a better league. It's it sent teams to the Final Four in recent memory. It's been a multi bid league on you know more than well more than one occasion, which is a rare thing for the MAC. I just I'm a bit sad because you know when you think metropolitan area college basketball, you think Big East and you think MAC. MAC the MAC is the is the leading is the metropolitan area's leading mid major league. It has a real imprint in this area, and 
it was fun for Jersey. You know, you have Mammoth Rider, you have Mammoth St. Peter's, you had Mammoth Iona, which is a game we're looking forward to. Uh, and, you know, those games are gone. So I get it from from Mammoth's standpoint. It makes sense. But I am sad. I feel like, you know, we as Jersey Metropolitan Hoops junkies are losing a little something here. And Mammoth and Ryder had really developed a very nice rivalry over the last few years. You know, they had some great games. You know, Justin Robinson's teams uh, had just some wars out in the Bronx Zoo. Uh, so, you know, yes, they will lose that. And St. Peter's, you know, there are two Jersey rivalries right there that, uh, you know, hopefully they're going to play non-conference, but you, you're going to lose that home and home every year. So, yes, Mammoth had a nice had a nice place in that league. Uh, so that will be sad. And the other thing is uh, that I want to mention is that, you know, we should we should talk about this. Like who's going to take their place if you're rich answer? who we know and like, we know and like Rich, you know, commissioner of the MAC does a good job. If you're Rich Enzo, you have to move, make a move here. Where are you looking, Steve? What are you, what are you thinking if you're, if you're the MAC to replace mom? It's a big loss. Yeah. And I, I think you can look to some of the Jersey schools, you know, perhaps an FDU is someone that they target. Uh, I, I think that's possible. The Northeast um, conference, right? That's the yes, next step right. down of local schools. Yeah. Wagner, maybe Wagner's not Jersey, but it might as well be over in Staten Island. Right. right. Yeah. I think Wagner w- would be, would be a good fit. Those are two area teams again, that I think would fit in well. And, you know, again, could cultivate some some different rivalries that that people would would really be into. So I th- I think you're right, though. I think the Northeast Conference is where you would really have to look for for uh, adding teams. So the issue with FDU is it's like a stone's throw from St. Peter's, right? So I don't know if that you have to have two teams so close to each other geographically. I don't know if that would happen. Uh, and then with you know NJIT in Newark, you know Newark seems like a nice fit, but on the other hand, really NJIT. They're much better suited in the America East. Yeah. The schools have just a more similar academic profile to them. And I, there's no nice way to say this, but let's face it. It's a lot harder to get into a lot of those America East schools than it is to get into the MAC schools. And that matters because the admission standards for NJIT basketball are very high. It behooves them to be in uh, with other schools that have similar standards. So I don't see them leaving that league. I think that's a good fit. But, you know, it, it does. it's going to be interesting to see where this goes next. And you hope too, as Mammoth moves, that maybe in the non-conference portion they can keep some of these these games alive, some of these rivalries alive with Ryder and, and St. Peter's and even Manhattan. Close road trips for the Hawks out of conference now. Maybe they can keep some of those games alive. But I do understand it is bittersweet to lose some of those fun games, especially the fun game that we saw this past Friday with Mammoth and St. Peter's. Whereas you lose those kind of schools, you gain the the Delawares and the Elons of the world and the and. Towson, you know, these schools that if you drive around New Jersey, you see plenty of bumper stickers from those three schools. So maybe more of a regional rivalry type appeal. Maybe it'll be a little bit more fun here in the Garden State where you have some of these out-of-state alum who now get to see Mammoth play their alma maters. So we'll see how it works. And I think the big question that Mammoth fans will be asking is, will they be able to compete? Can they compete? in this new conference. Rutgers has certainly struggled to compete with football as they move to the Big Ten, so we've seen it here in New Jersey. Can they compete as they move up, Steve? Well, I think definitely they're going to have to recruit and and add. And I think you have that. You're able to do that when you say, hey, we're in the CAA now. You're able to recruit a better level of athlete. Now, let, listen, the, the, the elephant in the room here is Iona, okay? Now you're moving away from Rick Pitino and Iona. 
Okay. That's not, you know, I, I would say that's not a bad thing. It's going to be really hard to get past them over the next however many years Rick Patino is going to be here. Um, now, with that said, like maybe a couple more months. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it, the Mac coaches, I will say this, have had to step their game up since Patino has come in. Let's face it. I mean, you, you had to, or you were just going to be roadkill. So, I think I think schools like Mammoth have already started that process. Now Mammoth's going to have to ramp it up even more now in the Colonial. But uh, yeah, you know there there is that they're they're going to have to recruit better and and get better athletes for sure. I, I think they'll compete. I mean, it's yeah. not that big of a leap. No. You're not joining the Big no. East, you know. I I think it, competition wise, I see yeah. you know King Rice seems to be in there for the long haul. Yeah. Um, he's, he's done a good job. He recruits well, so I don't see that competition being the problem. Well, and, and I think. I think Mammoth has already proven that they they're on a level with Hofstra and Drexel and Stony Brook and Northeastern. And those are a lot of the teams they're going to be playing in this region, Delaware, you know, they, they can already compete with those teams, you know, now, you know, they're going to, they're going to have to upgrade to win that league, but yeah, I think they're, they're pretty close. It'll be interesting to see, of course, and then I'm sure this is a topic that will come up throughout the rest of this season as we discuss Monmouth basketball and look ahead to the future for the Hawks. So that's a big storyline to follow here out of New Jersey. Another big storyline that we want to talk about at the top of the show, Jerry, has to do with the ending of that Seton Hall game against Marquette. Uh, some How fans- ridiculous! What a ridiculous upset, ending! To say the least. <laughs> I mean, so the game. Let me set the stage for you for anyone who was buried under a rock Saturday. If you're listening to this podcast, you have to know what happened, okay? The game at Seton Hall's game at Marquette is tied at 72. Marquette has the ball with the clock running down. Their guard, Greg Elliott, is driving. Uh, you know, he's not driving. He's setting up for a shot outside the three-point arc from straight away. Bryce Aiken, Seton Hall's guard, is defending him. Uh, Elliott's, Elliott's elbow hits Bryce Aiken in the face as they go up, and they call Bryce Aiken for the foul. Elliott makes one shot game over. There's one point something seconds left. And so there's three possibilities there when, the, when, the, when that play takes place, okay? The three ways the officials could handle this. One is to have a play on. And my, my view is anything outside the arc, unless the, the defender leaps into the shooter, which clearly did not happen here, Aiken went up straight up, unless the defender leaps into the shooter, that, it should be a, that you can easily call a play on there. Game goes into overtime. Nobody complains. Nobody's been screwed. Okay, let the teams and the players settle it in overtime. Or or Bryce Aiken gets hit in the face with an elbow, and you call an offensive foul. The rule of verticality, I'm going to quote it for you here, okay? This is a, this is a basketball officiating guide. So the, uh, the defender may rise or jump vertically and occupy space within his or her vertical plane. That's what Aiken's doing. Uh, the hands or arms of the defender may be raised within his or her vertical plane. The defender should not be penalized for leaving the floor. So Aiken did jump, but he jumped straight up. And the offensive player, uh, whether airborne or on the floor, may not clear out or cause contact within the defender's vertical plane. I think Bryce Aiken's face was within his vertical plane. The defender may not belly up or use the lower part of the body. Okay. So Aiken's leg was a little bit outside of his his plane, which may have caused the whistle. Really not enough to – there was really no contact there in the lower body. 
The player with the ball is to be given no more protection or consideration than the defender in judging which player violated the rules. The the least likely thing that happened on this play was a defensive foul on Bryce Aiken. That's the call Matt Potter made, whose vision was obscured, by the way, by another Marquette player. And so Seton Hall lost the game on a blown call. Now, Seton Hall did other things that didn't help them in this game. So they're having some issues. We can get into that. But the bottom line is a call was blown. And my question for the panel is, is two things here. What can be done when something like this happens? We've seen this a lot in the Big East. Steve, you remember Villanova, Seton Hall last year. They called a foul on Seton Hall with one second left, way away from the basket. So what can be done here? Can there be a review mechanism where, you know, there can be like a challenge? Because uh, right now you can't review fouls, and it's tough because it's a judgment call, and these games are already dragging on with a lot of stoppages at the end. Or just, can the Big East do something? Look, they're not going to issue a statement on a judgment call. They're only going to issue an, a statement, an, an apologetic statement, if there's a rules misinterpretation. But can the Big East avoid – you know, sticking Matt Potter on the next Seton Hall game? Can they not give this guy a Big East championship game? James Breeding, who officiated the worst, his crew was the crew chief for the worst officiated game I ever saw. Seton Hall Marquette, Big East semifinal in 2019. He's on the final four three weeks later. So can there be some accountability or measure when there's a blown call like this? I would love to hear the other your thoughts on this, fellas. Well, I mean, one idea, I mean, it's it's almost kind of that independent safety net that you sometimes see, uh, you know, the NFL's trying to get more of that in where the coach doesn't even need to call a challenge. You have someone up in the booth just reviewing the close plays and they're able to buzz down to the officials to take a second look. Maybe that's a way you go if you don't want the coaches to have these challenges. And like you said, Jerry, have these games kind of drag on. Maybe, you know, you have that independent eye in the sky who takes a look at these these close calls and not just fouls, but, you know, out of bounds and things like that to buzz down to the official to say, hold on a second, we might want to look at this. This might be wrong, especially in a crucial part. That might be one place to start if you don't want to give these coaches the the opportunity to challenge and drag out the game because challenges can be strategic at some points. It's almost an extra timeout unless you want to go the NFL route and knock them a timeout as well to challenge. So I think at least one place to start is is just kind of this independent replay uh, official up in the booth making sure these close plays are going the way they're supposed to go. You know, I think the 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 number one rule of any official should be the players have to decide the game on the court. You should not be deciding the game. If you're going to call a foul, and, and Jerry, you brought up the, the Seton Hall-Villanova game last year. If you're going to make a call like that, it has to be an egregious foul to make that call. You can't, you can't be the one that decides the game. You know, that I think that's that's the bottom line. You you it's really up to the officials to to take care of that and not be the ones who decide these games. Under the basket, I could see it. If guy gets clobbered under the basket, oh, if he gets clobbered, one yes. second left. That's yes, but under course. the basket, but away that 23 feet right. from the hoop, man. Come on. Yeah, it makes no sense. You but know, there's other some- leagues that evolve and grow and figure out ways to, you know, keep the human element, but also make sure that the call is right in the end. And that's the most important thing. And I think that that's what they have to try and figure out here because calls like that are just absurd. I mean, you you know, you can't have games ending in that type of circumstance. Yeah, there's no easy answer. And I mean, there's there's some obvious, you know, from a fan's perspective, there's some obvious first steps that can happen. But it's it's like you said, Chris, it's the balance of the, the human element as well as just making sure that 
A bad call doesn't decide a game. And of course, there's a whole series of events that happen in a basketball game that are bigger than just one call. There's teams that make mistakes that don't play well. There's calls that go your way and calls that go against you. But in crunch time, when the game is is hanging in the balance, you cannot have a ref blow a whistle and decide who wins. You can't have it. And as for Seton Hall, it comes at a bad time as well, because as we said in the last show, as they went on the road, we were looking for them to, to go one and one. That would have been a successful road trip. They go 0-2. Now they have a week to stew on it because the Providence game that was supposed to be Tuesday is wiped out. They have more or less a home and home with St. John's Saturday and Monday. So now they have a week to recover. Do they put this call in the past? Does it make them hungrier or is it kind of compound the things a little bit as they, they get ready to play a tough St. John's team, Jerry? Well, first of all, I, this, the sky is not falling for for Seton Hall. They have they had a really bad week, obviously losing two games. Their, their net is twenty nine right now, so they're in very good shape. They've given themselves a lot of cushion at a conference, uh, but you know the, there's a few things they need to they need to fix. First of all, they've had some bad luck. Okay, they're the only team in the Big East that had to play two games with eight players, and. You know, they were going to get a Providence team that was shorthanded, but Providence had so many COVID positives that they had to scrap the game, which is fine. But Seton Hall's the only team that had to go through a, a shorthanded, a real shorthanded week in the league. And now they've lost the Providence home game, which probably is not going to get made up. There's no clear place to make it up. So they've had some really rotten luck. Um, they have St. John's now scheduled in this nutty Two day, two games in three days. Very hard to beat. St. John's is okay. They're not bad. Not a bad team. You know they have some talent. They got to. They have to now play them twice in three days. That's hard. And this is a game that Seton Hall will be favored to win. I would think at the Garden, and then certainly at home in Walsh Gym with only students. So for Seton Hall to really reverse what happened last week, they have to sweep St. John's. That's not going to be easy. I do think one thing that plays into Seton Hall's favor is the road game first. Because they're coming off a full week's rest. St. John's won't be. And I do think Seton Hall will play better and more focused. Uh, and, you know, after what was, I think, a pretty unfocused week for them, there was a lot they did wrong on the court. So I do like Seton Hall having the road game first. It's going to be very hard for St. John's to go into Walsh Gym Monday and win with 1,400 students blowing the roof off, okay? And, and it's the equivalent of Kevin Willard's living room practically playing a game. So for Seton Hall, the key is, can they get the first end in the garden and then, you know, really roll downhill toward a sweep? I think they can. It's not going to be easy, but if they do that, you know, they'll basically have pushed the reset button on what's been a rough and rotten luck start to the Big East season, but a lot of cushion still for the Pirates, but you got to win some games and that starts this weekend. And Rutgers as well. Now they're coming off a road trip. And just like Seton Hall, we said they had to go one and one. And they did. Maybe not in the order that we expected. They lose at Penn State and they beat Maryland on the road. Now they come home to have Iowa on Saturday and then uh, Minnesota as well, or Iowa early in the week and then Minnesota. So, Chris, uh, what's the outlook for the Scarlet Knights after they grind out a, a tough win on the road at Maryland? Yeah, look, essentially Rutgers, you know, did what it absolutely had to do, which is pick up one of those two wins against Penn State and Maryland. The game against Penn State was just a total dud. Ron Harper Jr. and Geo Baker just had an off night offensively. The team just didn't play well. And it was a bit surprising because obviously Penn State is not exactly the most uh, difficult environment for road teams to go into. Um, you know, Penn State really has no home court advantage whatsoever there. But you know, Rutgers just didn't play well. And, and you know, it was, a, it was a tough loss. And you're, and you're kind of thinking, like, when are these road woes ever going to end? And then will they end? And then, obviously, they go to Maryland. They have a bad first half, turning the ball over too much. Um, they're down, you know, double digits. And then the second half, Ron Harper Jr. just rescues them, has a great game. Paul Mulcahy deserves a ton of credit, too. 
rebounding from a really rough first half where he had five turnovers um, before halftime. So it's just a, a really, you know, Rutgers couldn't lose that game against Maryland. They had to get that win. And the way the things are going this year with the Terrapins, with the coaching change, and obviously, you know, Jerry, you were there. I mean, that did not look like a, a tough environment either for, for Rutgers to go into. So they had to get that win. You have to start picking up road wins, especially at this point in January where the schedule is just as soft as it's going to be all year and the big as as far as far as the Big Ten gauntlet goes. So, you know, now you have another game again on Wednesday uh, against Iowa. This is the toughest opponent that Rutgers will see in this January stretch. Um, you know, Iowa has played pretty well. They beat Minnesota yesterday by 10 points, but Minnesota's been struggling. And then Rutgers goes on the road and plays at Minnesota. So that's another winnable road game. So, Listen, I mean, we we spoken about it, you know, last week. This is the time where Rutgers really needs to do some work to kind of continue to get back into the NCAA tournament picture. These are winnable games for Rutgers, and if they want to be that type of team and go back to the big dance, and they got to start winning games because February is just brutal. So take care of business now, and again, you know, you, you have another good opportunity, you know, to pick up a, a solid win against Iowa uh, tomorrow night. They did a good job at Maryland. Okay, down eleven, Maryland's got talent. And it was it, Ron Harper ran wild, which, you know, Danny Manning has no idea what he's doing. I mean, none whatsoever. When you're when you're defending Rutgers, how do you not bring help against Ron Harper? I mean, you you could pull any coach at any rec league in America, and they know you got to bring help against Ron Harper. Danny Manning doesn't do it, so he just has no clue what he's doing. Absolutely none. And but good for Rutgers, they took advantage, and also. Rutgers moved the ball really well. I mean, they passed the ball well, and they defended well, and, you know, they cleaned up the turnovers. So good for them. They earned a road win. Look, their net is 116. They got a long way to go. You really just got to win games. It's hard to really look down, too far down the road with Rutgers. Just win games. And Iowa's a good opportunity to, to beat a quality opponent, okay? And Rutgers has the full team right now. So, let's you know, they should be able to build off this. They should have some home court environment. Um you know, this is this is an opportunity for them this week if they go two and zero to really get back on track. Uh, Keegan Murray is a guy for Iowa who's just been scoring, you know, lighting up the scoreboard, and uh, that's going to be a big job for you know Caleb McConnell, uh, Mawat Mag, a combination of players. So Iowa scores, and Rutgers is going to have to bring their hard hats. Absolutely. And, and an opportunity, as we said, for the Scarlet Knights before things really get crazy in the month of February. As for the mid-majors in the state of New Jersey, well, we mentioned at the top, Mammoth, they're moving away from Rick Pitino as they switch conferences. They can't avoid them Tuesday because Iona comes to town to take on the Hawks. They have Fairfield on Thursday and then Manhattan on Saturday. So, Steve, it's a busy week for Mammoth after they lose two in a row this past week. Well, and it's not just that Mammoth lost two in a row. It's, it's how they lost on Sunday again on the road at Marist a team that had lost Friday night to Siena at home Mammoth was down 46 points with three minutes to go in the game they end up scoring the last 10 points of the game to lose by 36 the worst conference loss for Mammoth in program history Oof. can you believe I mean they were non-competitive now if that is not a turning point for this team, they are going to get run out of the building by Iona on Tuesday night. Uh, so we're going to see what happens. But Mammoth lost three straight. They, they, this is a team that went off to a 10-2 and, and two start. All right. Had two high major wins. Had two quad one wins. Had seven road wins. And now to lose like that, 
that was an eye opener. This, there's some problems and they're going to have to address them. They have a, a lot of seniors in the lineup. These guys are going to have to get together and figure out what's going on. King Rice is going to have to take charge of this situation. You know, he had been very hands off because he had so many experienced guys. Well, now he's going to have to take the reins and try and figure this out. Uh, and listen, after Iona, they have to go to Fairfield on Friday night and that will not be easy. Fairfield knocked them out of the MAC tournament in the quarterfinals, and they're better this year. So uh, Mammoth is a little alarming for sure. Here, here's what the, the issue is could be, Steve, and that is you just don't know how these COVID pauses are going to strike these teams. You know, everybody handles it differently. Where, did Mammoth's guys have symptoms? You know, were, how many guys had to be isolated for 10 days? I mean, these are all things that really can de- derail or sidetrack uh, or you know, make life a lot harder for a team. So like St. Peter's, for example, you know, they also had a, a similar pause. They also had guys in isolation, uh, but they, they, they come back and they're rolling. So, but you don't know who had what symptoms. You don't know who, how many guys had to isolate for how long. Were coaches able to work with players or not? So there's a lot of variables there. Monmouth appears to have been hit very hard by their COVID pause, and that stinks. But they got talent. They got experience, like Steve said. They got to figure it out. St. Peter's, you know, I went up to, with Steve to Jersey City to watch their game against Monmouth. They they handled it really well, and I got to give Shaheen Holloway a lot of credit. He's had his team ready to play coming off a 27-day game layoff, and I, I want to say this about Shaheen Holloway. The guy is is a really good coach and not just a recruiter. He, he can develop talent, and he's good at getting buy-in, and he can coach basketball. Like, that, that team executed well. On both ends. The only thing that St. Peter's doesn't do well is shoot the ball well. They do everything else well, including protect the ball, including share the ball. Jaheen Hall is a really good coach, and he has mom, he has uh, St. Peter's in the position to maybe become the number one challenger to Iona. That could also be Mammoth. You know, we'll see. The Max is a fun league, but but there's definitely the, the COVID pauses are a variable it's hard to account for. That, that Maris game to me, Burn the tape. That's just a classic trap game, at least in my opinion. You have a tough emotional game against an in-state rival before that. Then you have the first place team coming to town after that. Burn the tape. Just just get rid of it. Put it behind and regroup and, and take on the first place team, Iona, tonight. That's Tuesday. Then, as we said, Thursday at Fairfield. And then Sunday, home against Manhattan. So a tough stretch for the Hawks there. But it starts tonight with first place Iona in West Long Branch. Last but not least, as we wrap up the show, we have to mention the hottest team in the state of New Jersey, maybe one of the hottest teams in college basketball. That's the Princeton Tigers, first place in the Ivy League. As we said at the top of the show, they've won nine in a row. They're 4-0 in the conference, 14-3 and overall. Jerry, how are the Tigers doing this? They look, uh, they look great in the Ivy League right now. And they just beat Penn, had Penn at arm's length the entire game by 10. Uh, there's a guy, and I'm, pro- I'm probably going to butcher this name, but Tosin Ebuanman. He's a junior forward, 6'8". He's the breakout guy for Princeton. He's the he's the emerging talent that is sort of a point forward who has really made Princeton extra hard to guard. They already were hard to guard because all the guys can shoot the ball. But now they have this dynamic point forward. And, yeah, I mean, they're, Princeton's rolling, man. They got a lot of people who can beat you. Uh, super efficient on the offensive end, and credit to Mitch Henderson and his staff. They're doing a good job. So so they they now go to Dartmouth, which is a game, you know, it's a road game, but I think they'll be favored to win or probably win. And then and then they have home against Yale, which is a nice showdown on January 29th. 
And that'll really show you what they've got. Like Yale, Harvard, Princeton are the big three in this league. They could challenge for the Ivy League title. I want to also just mention NJIT, which is hosting Binghamton Saturday. And that's noteworthy because Binghamton's coached by Lavelle Sanders in his first year, former Seton Hall standout, who's coming home to Jersey to coach or where, you know, where he played his college ball. I'm going to be catching up with him this week for a, for a little Q and a, and Binghamton's done well. And they've won, they've won four league games, which they've gone years without doing that. So that's a fun little matchup in Newark on Saturday. Absolutely. Huge week for, for New Jersey college basketball. As we said, it starts tonight with Mammoth and Iona and just keeps rolling as we head into the weekend with some big matchups. We're certainly looking forward to it. I know you are as well. That's going to wrap up Jersey Jump Shot for this week. Thank you so much for listening. As we always say, be sure to check out app.com and northjersey.com for Chris, Jerry, and Steve's reporting on college hoops in New Jersey. Of course, tell your friends if you like what you hear and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. We're looking forward to the games this week. We'll break it all down on the next episode of Jersey Jump Shot. We hope you will join us for Steve, for Jerry, for Chris. I'm Ryan. Thanks for listening. Jersey Jump Shot is a production of the Asbury Park Press and USA Today Network. Subscribe at app.com.